All right, so uh, Genesis chapter 19. If you recall, last week we kind of went through chapter 18, uh, saw a little bit about Abraham and um, uh, he being the the friend of God, and so we learned how to uh, really kind of, you know, gear our walks towards what makes God happy and how to uh, be in direct fellowship with him on a consistent basis. And um, as I had stated last week, that what we were going to do was also look to contrast Lot. And we saw a little bit about Lot. And uh, so Genesis 19 is, is going to be a lot about Lot, no pun intended. Um, but I have to tell you that, you know, if you guys have read through this, you, you know, this is a pretty dark chapter. There's a lot of stuff going on in here. And so um, I'm going to do the best I can to, uh, to get through this. Um, so no hecklers in the front row, please. I appreciate that, okay? <laughs> so um, so Genesis chapter 19, you know, there's, there's an old story about a farmer who was an atheist, and he was uh, a proud atheist, and he would flaunt his atheism, his atheism, and in one particularly good harvest season, he wrote a letter to the editor of a newspaper, and the letter went something like this. I plowed my fields on Sunday. I planted on Sunday. I cultivated my crops on Sunday, and I hauled in my crops, um, but I never went to church on a Sunday. And yet, I have brought in more bushels per acre than any God-fearing Christian farmer in this area, even those who never miss a single Sunday. A very boastful, proud letter. So the editor of the newspaper put the the newspaper uh, to print, but underneath he wrote his own comment that said, God doesn't always settle his accounts in October. And um, I thought that was really fitting because in Genesis chapter 19, we're going to see that God was extremely patient for a long time, just like he has been with our society. And, uh, you know, God doesn't settle his accounts all at once, but make make no mistake, he will settle his accounts. So in Genesis chapter 19, you know, God's going to settle his accounts with Sodom and Gomorrah. And the name Sodom uh, has come to mean a highly wicked group of people. Um, you know, we hear it even in society for those of, uh, you know, some of our friends and whatever, you know, they're doing something and like, oh, yeah, just yeah, they know the term Sodom and Gomorrah, even though they don't have any kind of real understanding of what it really means. But the Bible tells us that God is slow to anger and not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance, that he is merciful, he's kind and he's loving. But there reaches a point where God in justice and in righteousness must act in judgment. And he does so here in chapter 19. Now, if you recall in chapter 18, verse 25, Abraham has a conversation with God where God tells Abraham that he's about to judge the city of Sodom. And because Abraham's nephew, Lot, is living in Sodom at the time, Abraham in this uh, chapter 18, verse 25 says to God, far be it. From you to do such a thing as this, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous should be as the wicked. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Now that's a great question. Does God ever do anything that's not right? No. Everything God does is right. So Abraham is saying, How can you judge the righteous with these wicked people? So he starts with 50 people. If you find 50 people, will you spare the city? And God says, okay, I'll spare it. And he says, well, what about 45? 
What about 30? What about 35? And it goes all the way down to 10. Sounds like it's, it's a negotiation, right? Um, but God agrees. And in doing this, what we find is that, you know, God is merciful and that he is willing to look for that small remnant, the righteous in that city. How do you guys feel when you read the newspaper or you see, uh, you turn on the television, you hear news of child molestation? Yeah. How about child rape? How about murder? I was going to ask if your blood ever boils, but obviously. (laughs) But you guys get angry, right? Absolutely. You know, you know, my, my phone, it's supposed to be a smartphone, right? And, um, you know, it's interesting because sometimes you drive to work and you get these notifications, right? Well, I don't know about you, but recently I've been getting quite a few of these Amber Alerts, you know, and every time I see one, it just kind of just, it just bugs me. It just grieves my heart. You know, you sit there and you're like, some child out there is in trouble, you know? And so I can only imagine what God's been sitting here waiting and watching Sodom and Gomorrah and all the things that they're going through, and he's got to be grieved. Would you agree? So if you think of God who sees all these headlines and you feel this way, you can imagine that, you know, as the creator, you know, he is righteous. And so at some point he's going to say, okay, you know what? I reserve ultimate judgment and the time is now. And uh, there is no going back. So one of the things I did during the study is I did a word search, and I wanted to look at the attributes of God uh, with some common words. And so here's kind of what you get. So if we look at the word love, when you associate it with God, um, it's used 360 times in the Bible. The word grace is found 148 times, and the word mercy 280 times, and the word peace 397 times. Now, all of those are attributes and their activities uh, of a wonderful God. But when you look up the word judge, it's found 188 times. Judgment, 190 times. And judgments, plural, 122 times. So we have in the scripture a dominant theme of over 500 times that the idea of God's judgment is prevalent and it's coming. And Jesus uses God's judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah as an illustration of what God will do again in the end times. If we look at Luke 17:22, he said to his disciples, the days will come when you desire to see one of the days of the son of man and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look here or look there. Do not go after them or follow them for as the lightning that flashes out of one part under heaven and shines to the other part under heaven. So also the son of man will be in his day. But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by his generation. And it was in the days of Noah, so it will be also in the days of the Son of Man. They ate, they drank, they married wives, they were given a marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark, and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, as it was also in the days of Lot, they ate, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built. But on the day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Even so will it be the day when the Son of Man returns or is revealed. Pretty heavy. So here you see Sodom. One day, business as usual. 
Shopkeepers are opening up their shops, getting ready for business. The local Sodom Starbucks down the road is giving out the cappuccinos, double espressos. And, uh, you know, you got the McDonald's over in, in Gomorrah, you know, drive through is pretty busy. So it's pretty much business as usual. And then all of a sudden the next day, total destruction. Everything is, is gone. Now, before we get deeper into the text tonight, I want us for, uh, to keep something in mind. And as we're looking at Lot, the tendency is for us to kind of think of him as someone who is either not, not a real believer or, you know, whatever it is, the thought that goes through your mind. But keep in mind that Lot actually started well. And if you look at Genesis 12:5, we see that he was a faithful member of Abraham's entourage. And he did that 800-mile trek from Ur the Chaldees to, uh, to Canaan. So something changed in Lot's wife. And we're going to, I mean, and, well, that too. But something changed in Lot's life. And we're going to see some of those things that kind of led him down that road. Now, unfortunately, when Abraham selflessly presented Lot with the choice of land, Lot did the opposite. Lot was selfish. And so he chose a very lush land. You would think that here's your uncle. He's been you know, providing for you. He's been taking care of you. He feeds you all this other stuff. And he gives him a choice. Which one do you want? And Lot chooses the lush land. So Lot, he went from looking towards Sodom in chapter 13, verse 10, to pitching his tent towards Sodom in chapter 13, verse 12, and then to living in Sodom. And we see that in chapter 14, verse 12, and then finally to becoming eventually an important leader in that city. You could say that Lot was kind of like the poster boy of spiritual compromise. And the fact that Lot had worked his way up to becoming one of Sodom's leading citizens indicates that he was no longer uh, a threat to their immoral way of life. So let's take a look at uh, chapter 19. And if you want, let's turn with me. I'm going to read through this pretty quickly here uh, because we have a lot to cover. Bless you. So chapter 19. Oops, sorry, I was in Exodus. Okay, now, the two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. And when Lot saw them, he rose to meet them, and he bowed himself with his face toward the ground. And he said, Here now, my lords, please turn in to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. And then you may rise early and go on your way. And they said, No, but we will spend the night in the open square. But he insisted strongly, and so they turned in to him and entered his house. And then he made a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. Now before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both old and young, all the people from every quarter surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, and they said to him, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us, that we may know them carnally. So Lot went out to them through the doorway and shut the door behind him. And he said, Please, my brethren, do not do so wickedly. See, now I have two daughters who have not known a man, please let me bring out, bring them out to you and you may do to them as you wish only do nothing to these men. Since this is the reason they have come under the shadow of my roof. And they said, stand back. Then they said, this one came in to stay here and, and he keeps acting as a judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. So they pressed hard against the man lot and came near to break down the door. 
But the men reached out their hands and pulled Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck the men who were at the doorway of the house with blindness, both small and great, so that they became weary trying to find the door. And then the men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here? Son-in-law, your sons, your daughters, and whomever you have in the city, take them out of this place. For we will destroy this place because the outcry against them has grown great before the face of the Lord. And the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out, spoke to his sons-in-law, who had married his daughters, and said, Get up, get out of this place, for the Lord will destroy this city. But to his sons-in-law he seemed to be joking. And when the morning dawned, the angels urged Lot to hurry, saying, Arise, take your wife and your daughters who are here, lest you be consumed in the punishment of the city. And while he lingered, the men took hold of his hand, his wife's hands, and the hands of his two daughters, and the Lord being merciful to him, and they brought him out and set him outside the city. And so it came to pass when they had brought them outside that he said, Escape for your life. Do not look behind you nor stay anywhere in the plain. Escape to the mountains, lest you be destroyed. And then Lot said to them, Please, no, my lords, indeed now your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have increased your mercy which you have shown me by saving my life. But I cannot escape to the mountains, lest evil overtake me and I die. See now, the city is near enough to flee to, and it is a little one. Please let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my soul shall live. And he said to him, See, I have favored you concerning this thing also, in that I will not overthrow the city for which you have spoken. Hurry and escape there, for I cannot do anything until you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zoar. Now the sun had risen upon the earth when Lot entered Zoar, and then the Lord rained brimstone and fire on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. And so he overthrew those cities, all the plain, all the inhabitants of the cities, and went and what grew on the ground. But his wife looked back behind him, and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And then he looked towards Sodom and Gomorrah and saw all the land of the plain. And he saw, and behold, the smoke of the land, which went up like the smoke of a furnace. And it came to pass when God destroyed the cities of the plain that God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had dwelt. And then Lot went up out of Zoar and dwelt in the mountains and his two daughters with him, for he was afraid to dwell in Zoar. And he and his two daughters dwelt in a cave. Now the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is no man on the earth to come into us, as is the custom of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him, and we may, that we may preserve the lineage of our father. So they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with her father, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. And it happened on the next day that the firstborn said to the younger, Indeed, I lay with my father last night. Let us make him drink wine tonight also, and you go and lie with him, that we may preserve the lineage of our father. Then they made their father drink wine that night also. And the younger arose and lay with him, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus both the daughters of Lot were with child by their father. The firstborn bore a son, called his name Moab, he is the father of the Moabites to this day, and the younger she also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the people of Ammon to this day. So, 
several different narratives going on, and let's see if we can kind of um, move through um, move through them pretty quickly and break them down because there's a lot here that I think um, um, for us to learn tonight. So if we look at um, verse one, you know the angels kind of arrive in Sodom, and you guys notice where Lot was when they arrived. Sitting at the gate, the angels leave Abraham and the Lord at the trees uh, of Mamre, as you recall, in the late afternoon. And by the evening, they're already in Sodom, which is a journey of about 18 miles if it's at the northern tip of uh, the Dead Sea or, or it's 40 miles if it's at the southern tip, which a lot of people feel that it is. So this in and of itself is almost indicative of the supernatural nature of these two visitors or these two angels. Now, the word angels is the Hebrew noun or word malak or messenger, a representative. Um, And the Old Testament uses this term to describe both human and supernatural beings. Now, the two angels find Lot sitting in the gate, which is a very common place uh, in the Middle East for conversation and for business uh, and for the administration of justice. And it isn't like a gate that kind of opens on hinges. Um, It is a stone room that's kind of built into a wall and there's benches and people congregate. And if you are in a position of authority or prominence, um, then this is where you, this is where you stay. And so this is where we find Lot. Um, he's not only living in Sodom now, he's, he's actually one of the big wigs. Okay. So he's, he's gone from looking at it, pitching his tent. He's like immersed completely. And at the end of verse one, take a look. He says, when Lot saw them, he rose and he bowed himself with his face toward the ground. Now, this was common. We talked about this last week. Uh, very typical Middle Eastern hospitality way of bowing and showing respect. It's not really sure, uh, and it's not really mentioned clearly whether or not Lot understood who these visitors were. But uh, nevertheless, he did uh, show them uh, some hospitality. So in verses 2 and 3, we see that, um, you know, something that we touched on last week, you'll see a little bit clearer here in these two verses, and that is, you know, Lot's a picture of a worldly, half-hearted believer, um, one who has knowledge of God, but he denies the power thereof. And he doesn't have a close relationship or a fear of God like his uncle Abraham does. And he's sort of caught like in the middle. He would be kind of like the person who says, I'm a Christian. I believe in God. Um, these things are important to me, but you don't see any fruit in their life. And that's kind of how you know, we're, we're starting to see Lot's um, life start to manifest itself. Now, in the late 1800s, there was an interesting political group called the Mugwumps. Now, the Mugwumps were a New York state group of Republicans who voted for Madison, who later became President Madison, who was a Democrat, and uh, because they saw political and financial corruption in the Republican Party with James Blaine as their candidate. They, they just decided, let's swing the entire state towards Madison, and they became known as the Mugwumps. They're fence setters. They say they're one thing, but they act very different when it comes time to election. And so Lot was like a Mugwump. His mug was on one side of the fence, and his wump was on the other. And you never knew where he stood spiritually because he was always teetering back and forth. And we see that uh, the later on in, in Lot's life that uh, we have a picture of. So Lot's story began back in chapter 13, verses 10 through 12. As you recall, he's still with Abraham, and he just got back from Egypt. Now, Egypt is a big departure from what he had been used to, 
All right, so he just gets back from Egypt. And in chapter 13, it says this, Lot lifted up his eyes and he saw all the plain of Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere. And this was obviously before, you know, Sodom and Gomorrah had been destroyed. And it was like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt as you go towards Zoar. So as we look to now see how Lot started his fall in his walk, the first step that we notice downward was towards Sodom, and he, and he looked with his eyes. Now, and guys, this is going to be difficult for us because, as Xavier's always taught us, you know, men are moved by what they see and women by what they feel. And it doesn't even matter if you're looking at a woman, but if you're looking at a car, I'm not looking at you, Andre, but if you're looking at a car, if you're looking at whatever it is, the first thing we notice is, is you know, this is the thing that we want, right? So this is the same thing that's happening with, with Lot. He focused, and it says that he looked longingly at Sodom. It's not only that he pitched his tent, but he started to look longing like, I want to be there, okay? And we'll see this same thing repeated in his wife a little bit later on. Now, keep in mind, you know, Lot lived in, ter- in tents all of his life, and he spent the last several years uh, migrating with uh, Abraham from Ur of the Chaldeans up to Haran and then down into the promised land. So he's lived a very rural lifestyle. Uh, the idea of the city with all its pleasures really attracted him. Now, we also see in verse 11 here, then Lot chose for himself all the plain of Jordan and he journeyed east and they separated from each other. Okay. So now the second step is that he chose or he's choosing now that this is going to be a place for his future. So not only now is he looking, now he's choosing, uh, and he's making a decision to walk towards sin. And then in verse 12, we see the third step, that Abraham dwelt in the land of Canaan, Lot dwelt in the cities of the plain, and pitched his tent even as far as Sodom. So now he's moving closer, and what he sees, and now what he's moved uh, attracts his attention and just gets one step closer to being full-blown, out of fellowship with God, and uh, walking away. And then we see in chapter 14, verse 12, and, and this is the battle of the kings that we studied a few weeks ago, um, that they also took Lot, Abraham's brother's son, and here's the key, who dwelt in Sodom and his goods and departed. So now we see that he's no longer moving towards there. Now we see that he is dwelling, okay? So he's moved into Sodom. He looked at it. He moved closer. He's living in it. And, um, but I also want you to kind of look at verse 2. Now, verse 2, we also have the first mention of the word house in the Bible. And uh, I found this kind of interesting, but I also want you to notice it. And it said, here now, my lords, please turn into your servant's house and spend the night. So interestingly enough, Lot, who used to live in tents, now lives in a house. He's no longer traveling. He's no longer, um, you know, a uh, sojourner. He's not a pilgrim anymore. Um, He's settled down. This is where he is going to stay. Now, this is important because this is now the contrast that we're going to see between Abraham and Lot. Abraham still lived in a tent. Lot, as we just talked about, now has a home. Okay? Abraham is a pilgrim. Lot is now a citizen of Sodom. So you can see the, 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 the polar opposites now. Okay? Now, you guys might be asking, okay, why is this a big deal? Have any of you guys been asking that yet? No? Okay. Well, look at Hebrews 11, verses 9 through 11. It discusses Abraham, Abraham, and it says, Abraham by faith lived, or he dwelt, in the land of promise as if he dwelt in a foreign country, dwelling in tents. For he looked and waited for a city 
that has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. So he becomes the picture of somebody on earth who realizes, hey, listen, I'm just passing through. Uh, I'm not going to dig my roots in too deeply here. Whereas Lot is saying, hey, I kind of like this. This is where I want to be. Now, does that mean that as Christians, we can't live in cities or own homes? That's not the point here. The point is, is one of a comparison. And one is where, you know, one is Abraham who is heavenly minded. And you have the other that um, is only heavenly minded in maybe word and deed, but not really in heart. And, and that's really the point that uh, um, they're trying to make or that the author is trying to make here. So in verse 2, it says, Lot tells these two angels, disguised as visitors, to spend the night at his house. And there's, the response was, no, that's no, okay. You know what, what? We're going to stay in the open square. Now, I want you to see what happens. But he insisted strongly. And I venture to guess that he knew how bad his city was. That's why, you know, if you take into consideration the culture of hospitality, uh, the fact that he wanted them to stay in his home, and he knew how bad the city was, this is why he's urging them, no, 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 I, I want you to stay with me. Please come stay with me. Now, we see in, in verses 4 through 11 that the angel's stay was uh, interrupted very quickly. Um, and in, in verse 4, notice that it says that every man and boy in Sodom was dangerous and wicked. Everybody in the city came out to surround that house. Now, think about it. I mean, the Bible doesn't really exaggerate, right? So when it says everybody, it's everybody, you know, young and old. So everybody is going to surround this house. Now, I was reading this and I thought, well, maybe this is a little over the top. Well, as you dig into this, it really isn't because we see a lot of this stuff happen not too far from where we live. And um, so let's talk about the perversion. How, how widespread do you think this perversion was? Yep. Absolutely. And we're going to see that. Um, and we probably aren't going to like the answer to this. Um, maybe it was the older men that were discipling the younger. Now, if they have children in their home and they see this kind of lifestyle being carried out, what do you think they're going to do? I mean, we see that today, don't we? So it's not far from you know, maybe the truth that uh, maybe there was sexual abuse in the home that caused, you know, these boys to kind of respond the way that they did and follow the older, the older men to this home. This is a very, story, uh, very tragic storyline. Um, but in the United States, let's just kind of look at some facts here at home. In the U.S., one in five girls and one in 20 boys is a victim of child sexual abuse. 20% of adult females and 5 to 10% of adult males recall a childhood sexual assault or sexual abuse incident. Every year, more than 3 million reports of child abuse are made in the United States involving more than 6 million children. And child pornography in the U.S. is one of the fastest-growing businesses online with an estimated annual revenue of $3 billion. So if this is happening in the U.S., I mean, you can only imagine what was happening there. Obviously, they didn't have the Internet, but, I mean, you, you can tell that we're, we're going down that road very, very quickly. Guys, and this is an important point to make. We have the ability in our homes to either 
teach our children about purity or perversion. And it's up to us to really teach them about purity. Because as, as we have seen, our society is getting worse and worse. And we, we have to take a stand as men. We, we can't allow one, our kids to be perverted the way they are. Now, if we look at Sodom and Gomorrah, again, it's been a symbol of wickedness, of perversion, uh, of moral depravity. And in, last week in chapter 18, um, you know, we addressed some of the unfamiliar sins that Sodom was guilty of. For instance, like arrogance and um, abundant food and careless ease that resulted in being unconcerned about the poor and the needy. Do you guys remember that? We talked a little bit about that. Now, the scriptures also mentioned that they were guilty of rejecting God's word. And we saw we see that in Luke uh, 10, 8 through 12. They're also guilty of adultery and lying uh, and abetting criminals. And then here we see, obviously, homosexual perversion. Now, make no mistake, God's original intent uh, has not changed. From the very beginning, as we saw in the early part of Genesis, that um, God made man for a woman and woman for a man, not man for a man and a woman for a woman, right? So you can imagine, if you're God, just put yourself in God's shoes right now, you are probably seething. You are just holding yourself back. And we're going to see that, you know, the angels, as they are trying to tell Lot to get out and get out of Dodge, you can, you can sense they've got a sense of urgency. They're saying, hey, you, you need to go. And so we'll look at that. Now, look at verse 5. And in the King James, which is uh, what I'm reading from, it has italics uh, for the word carnally. Do you guys see that? Now, it's implied by the text, and I'll tell you why in a minute, but it, it simply says that we may know them. Now, the translators, the translators inserted carnally, and that's a very correct move. Some biblical translations, like the New Living Translation, make it even clearer. It says, let us take these men that we might have sex with them. That's what the word to know implies. Mm-hmm, carnal. Now, it has the meaning of intimate sexual intercourse. It is also used to describe perversions such as sodomy as here. It also in Judges 19.22, um, uh, rape in Judges 19.25. So there's really no mistaking what's going on here. So let's take a look a little bit. Let's take a step back and take a look at uh, homosexuality during ancient times, just to kind of give you a little bit of perspective. In the ancient Egyptian views on homosexuality range from providing a way of mastery over the gods and homosexual lovers continuing their relationship in the afterlife to mild disapproval, though sex with boys seems to, to have been condemned, which I guess is a good thing, if you, all things considered. But, um, but one commentator uh, concludes, it may be well that Egyptians saw nothing immoral in homosexual acts where there was mutual consent. So, you know, we, we, we heard years ago that there's nothing wrong with sex outside of marriage as long as two adults mutually consent. You guys remember that? Now we're starting to hear that in the homosexual community. And it's just, uh, it's, it's interesting how, you know, like, uh, you know, scriptures tell us there's nothing new under the sun, except this time it's, uh, it's coming back with a vengeance. Now the Mesopotamian king, uh, Hammurabi had male lovers and male prostitution was practiced in temples. And it seems clear that the Mesopotamians saw nothing wrong in homosexual acts between consenting adults. So there we go again. We see the, the whole theme of consenting adults. Now, 
When you compare the tolerance and the practice of homosexuality uh, that was common in, in homosexuality common in the uh, ancient Middle East with the clear commands of God uh, in the Mosaic Law, you see a, a very distinct difference. In Leviticus 18.22, it says, You shall not lie with the male as with a woman. It's an abomination. And then Leviticus 20.13 says, If a man lies with the male as he lies with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death, and their blood shall be upon them. Now, the word abomination in these verses is the Hebrew word toiba. The basic meanings are to abhor or to loathe or to detest, expressing in the strongest possible language that a custom or a thing is this, that a, this custom or this thing is repugnant to God. So for thousands of years, people have recognized that the Bible condemns homosexuality as a sin, and they understood that. There was never a dispute about what the Bible said. Now, you can say, I disagree with the Bible, I, I don't like what it says, or whatever, and, and that's your prerogative, that's your privilege, but there was never a dispute about this. Now, the Old Testament Levitical laws get really explicit about what to do whenever there's an offense or a case regarding homosexuality. And we'll see this in just a bit. And here's a case where people, again, for thousands of years have recognized this, and they associate it with the posturing in the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. So um, for these men, they said, you know, we want to come in to these men, and we want to force ourselves on them and know them sexually, intimately, and carnally. That's what they're saying. And Lot, in a weird way, is going to prevent that, um, which I found kind of interesting. You would think that because he's been so um, on the fence that he would just let them do whatever they want. But I think he's got a little bit uh, more of a grieving heart for what's going on, but yet he was so apathetic to not do anything about it. Now, guys, before I go on, I just want to make the point that this is not a tirade against homosexuals or homosexual, uh, homosexuals, but against the practice itself of the, the perversion uh, of the practice itself. You know, we hate the sin that they're involved in, but we love the sinner. And so that's really what we want to kind of focus on is that, you know, we all know people that are suffering from, you know, some type of illness. We know people that are dealing with, you know, homosexual tendencies. We know all of this stuff. And just remember that there's a person there that's hurting, and we were there, you know, at one point as well. Now, here's the problem with this, this, this whole belief, and that is you cannot be a practicing homosexual and hold to the belief that it's wrong. You guys understand that? Okay. That it's a sin. You, ju you just can't do it. It's the two are mutually incompatible, especially if you can consider yourself a homosexual Christian. Now, have you guys heard that term? Okay. That's a term that's come up with the uh, Church of uh, Metropolitan Community Church under Troy Perry. And uh, this guy used to be a Pentecostal preacher, and he kind of came out of the closet, you know. Now, some of us ushers, we tease on Sunday mornings, you know, because we've got an usher's closet downstairs, and we say, hey, you know, it's coming out of the closet. This guy really did come out of the closet, okay? So... <laughs> there goes the usher ministry i'm sorry so they believe and they state that uh i'm a christian but i'm a practicing homosexual now guys i don't know how that makes you feel but i just it just doesn't sit well it doesn't it doesn't sit well in my heart 
So allow me to read you an excerpt from their website. This is pretty interesting. In 1968, a year before the uh, New York's Stonewall riots, a series of most unlikely events in Southern California resulted in the birth of the world's first church group with a primary positive ministry to gays, lesbians, bisexual, and transgender persons. Those events, a failed relationship, an attempted suicide, a reconnection with God, an unexpected prophecy, and the birth of a dream led to uh, MCC's first worship service, a gathering of 12 people in Reverend Troy Perry's living room in Huntington Park, California. That first worship service in 1968 launched the international movement of metropolitan community churches, which today has grown to 43,000 members and adherents in almost 300 congregations in 22 countries. And during the last past 36 years, MCC's prophetic witness has forever changed the face of Christianity and helped to fuel the international struggle for LGBT rights and equality. Now, I don't know about you, but I mean, I, I, I read this and I thought, you know, something's a little bit awry here. Um, now, this guy, Troy Perry, basically says this. Homosexuality is a gift from God. Therefore, God condones and blesses what I am doing. That's crazy, isn't it? It is. And we're going to talk about how they get around that and how they twist that. So if you're them, you've got to do something now with the thousands of years of biblical interpretation condemning homosexuality. So what do you do? Here's what they do. You reinterpret the text to mean something other than what they plainly mean. Now, the first real attempt at this was back in 1955 with an Englishman by the name of Sherman Bailey, who wrote a book called Homosexuality and the Western Christian Tradition. And what he said he came to what he said when he came to Genesis 19 was this: the sin of Sodom was not a proposed homosexual homosexual rape at all, but it was the lack of hospitality shown these two men who came to visit. Because hospitality was such a huge thing in that culture, and for them to barge in and not show hospitality, that was their sin. That's why I was judged, and that's why the city fell. Now you understand why I was telling you and building the whole um, support around the hospitality, because these guys say this is why the city fell. They weren't showing these these guys uh, hospitality. Now this... (laughs) The same author will acknowledge that when you get to the New Testament, there are some pretty blatant texts like the book of Jude that says the people of Sodom and Gomorrah were involved in sexual immorality and they loved strange flesh. And so here's what this guy says to that. He says, yes, you know, the New Testament condemns homosexuality, but the interpretations of that came between the Old and the New Testament in the intertestamental periods. And so they don't hold the same viability. Okay, and it gets better. So the big question is, what do you do with all those texts that blatantly speak out against homosexuality? What what are you going to do with them? And this is what he says. The problem in the Bible is not homosexuality, but homosexual promiscuity. Okay, that is, you can have a partner and a lifelong partner, but if you sleep around, that's the sin that God condemns. (laughs) I mean, it just gets better. I'm sorry, but anyway. Well, I mean, you know what I mean. It's just for us, it gets it's it's funnier. But anyway, so here's what I want to say. Simply that if you take a straightforward reading of the text, it can only lead to one conclusion. 
and that is homosexuality is sinful, it's wrong, and it's unbiblical. Now, granted, guys, we know that there's a bunch of other sins that are sinful, wrong, so on and so forth, right? We've all been saved by grace, okay? Um, This is not an excuse. You know, we have all fallen short. We've all, you know, gotten to that point where, you know, we were intercepted, as I like to call it, by God, who just, you know, took us and said, hey, you know what, you're going down a path that you don't really want to go down. And uh, so there's no excuse for, for this. I'm just... I'm just amazed at the stuff that's out there that if you really start digging into this, it's just crazy stuff. So so getting back to verse 5, they say that we may know them carnally. And it again, as we talked about, it has the meaning of intimate sexual intercourse. Now, this guy, Troy Perry, also refers to himself as a homosexual theologian. So that's why I said it's getting better because now he's supposedly a theologian of the Bible and he's a homosexual. So... Go figure. But he says, yes, the Old Testament Hebrew word can sometimes be translated as knowing a person intimately sexually. And in fact, they say 15 times it is used this way in the Old Testament. However, over 900 times they say that same word simply means just to know somebody mentally. Okay. Now, some might say they've got a point. No, they don't. They have no point here. The correct interpretation is based on the correct context. And we, come to, we go to a church that our pastor is very good at teaching us what? Context, 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 right? So it's all about the context here. Knowing them carnally or we want to have sex with them. That is the correct translation, period. So let's just say even though they use it 15 times, it wouldn't matter if it was used one time because this is what the text says, all right? So before... We move on. Let's let's kind of uh, redirect now and get back to verses 6 through 8. And here we see, and I'm going to read this so that we uh, get a sense of where we are again. So Lot went out to them through the doorway, shut the door behind them, and said, Please, my brethren, do not do so wickedly. See, now I have two daughters who have not known a man. Please let me bring them out to you, and you may do with them as you wish. Only do nothing to these men, since this is the reason they've come to the shadow of my roof. Now, before we get to the obvious, apparent, crazy thing that's going on here in verse 7, notice that he calls the men of Sodom what? Brethren. He calls them brothers. Now, that's very telling of the spiritual nature and condition of Lot's life. There's a relationship there with these guys. It's kind of like when I see you guys on Sunday morning, good morning, brother. You know, there's a relationship there. So Lot Lot knows these guys. You know, he goes to lunch with these guys. He hangs out with them. So... There's a relationship. So Lot steps out of the door in an attempt to kind of diffuse the situation. And in verse 8, we see that Lot responds to the Sodomites with a startling suggestion. See, now I have two daughters who have not known a man. Please let me bring them out to you, and you may do with them as you wish. Now, I know what you're thinking. Is, Is Lot, like, just outside of his mind at this point? You know, now... I'm not going to speak in his defense, and we talked about the whole hospitality thing and everything, but that doesn't clear him at all. He's, he's offering up his daughters. He's doing something that probably most of you guys are, are fathers in here, right? I mean, can you imagine doing that to your daughter, saying, Yeah. 
And it's sad. I mean, it, it really is sad. And um, what, what I can tell you is that I think that Lot's moral compass has gone, you know, way off here. Um, he's been living in Sodom. He's a leader now in this community. Um, it's rubbed off on him. Uh, I, I'm not going to say that he's kind of bought into it because uh, there are scriptures that say that, you know, Lot had a grieving heart for this. Uh, and the scriptures always call, uh, also call him righteous. But, you know, it's difficult to live in a culture with non-biblical values and not have it kind of rub off on you. Now, we see this all the time. We're bombarded with messages all the time on TV, billboards, radio, uh, cable TV, to the point where, you know, if we're not careful, we can get numb to it. Um, So we think, no problem, let's go see that movie. You know, the F word's only in there about five or six times. Or, you know what, people, people say it all the time. It's no big deal, right? I don't know. Or... You know, there's only four sex scenes in that movie. People do it all the time. What's the big deal? We, we, what's that? You're pitching the tent. You're starting to look and you're starting to gaze and you're, all of a sudden you're starting to live right where that's at and pretty soon you know it, you're right there. So in verse 9, you know, we see that not only are they getting a little bit uh, angered at the lot, now they are accusing him of acting like a judge and they start to threaten him. Now, how many times have we been accused of being judgmental when we try to share our faith or we try to stand for what's right or wrong? You know, don't judge. Well, why not? <laughs> you know? So the world mocks us because they see hypocrisy in the church and even in our lives. And the response to us is, well, you know what? The Catholic priests are pedophilias uh, and the megachurch pastors are involved in this or that. They are, there's scandals everywhere. We don't claim to be Christians, yet you do, and you're hypocrites. So part of what our job is as men in the home is, one, teach our families, um, you know, the word of God, right? So that we can live upright and we can be a light in a dark place. And this is where I think Lot was, uh, was uh, not doing his job as a man. Now, if we look at the end of verses 9, Uh, And then through 11, um, you know, we see that uh, where they said they pressed hard against the man Lot, came near to break down the door, but the men reached out their hands and they pulled Lot, meaning these two angels, into the house with them and they shut the door. And they struck the men who were at the doorway of the house with blindness, both small and great, so that they became weary trying to find the door. Um, You guys remember a TV series not too long ago, well, probably years ago, um, called Touched by an Angel? You guys remember that? The the thought came to mind when I was reading this. This is kind of like punched by an angel, right? You know, these guys kind of get manhandled by these angels. And, um, you know, but you really don't want to mess with an angel, right? Um, Angels are mentioned about 34, uh, in 34 different books of the Bible, 17 in the Old, 17 in in the New Testament, And then there's about 103 references in the Old Testament, about 165 references in the New Testament. So, you know, Billy Graham used to call uh, angels God's secret agents, and I thought that was kind of a pretty cool uh, name for them. But the book of Hebrews also describes them as ministering spirits um, sent by God to minister to us who will inherit salvation. So... It's interesting that we're now seeing an account of angels kind of stepping in and trying to protect Lot from his own sin or from the sin of that city that he's been partaking in. Now, 
you and I have angels that protect and watch over us, and I think that's pretty cool. Um, but the other thing is that, you know, angels are invisible, and they don't have a body for a reason. And I think that the you know, scripture is pretty clear, you know, on the warnings against worshiping angels. So, um, but as I was doing this study, you know, it was fascinating to see that, you know, they are beings not only to protect us, but to minister. Um, they are there for God's purposes, and they have no limitations or restrictions like we do as human beings. So um, we, we see them that sometimes they take on different forms. Um, you know, there's, there's a whole lot of stuff going on these days about UFOs and all that kind of stuff. You know, who knows about all that stuff? All I know is that, you know, God says that, uh, you know, these angels are, are um, angelic beings, and I can't see, you know, people saying that, you know, a UFO is an angel. I don't know if you guys have been hearing about that, but it's just kind of uh, bizarre. I think the, uh, the further we get to, um, uh, or I said, the closer we get to the Lord coming, I think the weirder stuff is uh, starting to kind of uh, unfold. Now, we also see in the Bible that uh, in the Garden of Eden, there were angels that stood guard with a flaming sword and that Adam and Eve, you know, they saw them. They could interact with them. Um, and then in Genesis 18, we saw that the Lord and two angels had dinner with Sarah and with Abraham, right? So now, does anyone know here what you feed an angel for dinner? Who said angel food? <laughs> Dessert. <laughs> I figured somebody would get that joke right. So we see angels in Sodom, and they're kind of like these divine bouncers, right? And here's a little bit on the uh, on angelic power. In Second Kings 18, Sennacherib, the Assyrian, gathered his troops against Israel, and they're staging an attack on Israel at this point. And King Hezekiah is in the city, and he sees and he hears what they're planning. He prays to the Lord, please save us from this enemy. And then he tears his robe and he says, we trust in the Lord, not our strength. So the Lord answers his prayer. And the next day, one angel goes through the camp of the Assyrians and kills 185,000 Assyrians. That's one angel. Okay. Now there are two in the city of Sodom, massive power here. It can totally wipe out the entire city. And that puts a whole new spin on what Jesus said to Peter in the garden of Gethsemane. He said, Peter, Put your sword away. Don't you know I can call for 12 legions of angels? Now, for those of you that are really good at math, a legion's three to 6,000 Roman soldiers, right? So basically what Jesus is saying is, so you don't know, Peter, that I can call between 36 to 72,000 angels, uh, and if one angel can take out 185,000 Syrians, you can imagine what 72,000 angels can do. I mean, just immense power that these beings have. So here you've got these two angels that can do some major damage and uh, they really don't know what they're dealing with. So if we look at uh, verses 12 through 14, um, you know, here's the account where Lot goes and tries to warn his family. He goes to his sons-in-laws and what do they do? Ah, whatever. You're, you know, they laugh at him. He has no credibility, right? None. So as as we see in the text here that they've probably been around Lot. They've seen his witness or lack thereof, and they've seen his lifestyle. He's not a godly man. He, he doesn't have anything that would allow them to desire God, right? So when he goes to say, hey, judgment's coming, they're like, 
Oh, yeah, you know, you're, drink, you're, you're drunk, you're drinking something, you're smoking something, right? So in verses 15 to 23, you know, we see that, um, we see here that it says that uh, when the morning dawned, the angels urged Lot to hurry, saying, Arise, take your wife, your two daughters who are here, lest you be consumed in the punishment of the city. And here's the key. And while he lingered, the men took hold of his hand, his wife's hand, and the hands of his two daughters, the Lord being merciful to him, and they brought him out, out outside the city. Now, watch this. Then Lot said to them, Please, no, my lords. Indeed, now your servant has found favor in your sight. I guess he's assuming that he has found favor in their side, right? I mean, that's what it sounds like, right? And you have increased your mercy. And he goes on and he, and he really is saying, listen, I don't want to go to Zoar and, and please send me here. And so from in, in verses 15 and 16, we really start to see Lot is hesitating. We see him linger. He's dragging his feet. He's hesitating now. And the word linger there in the Hebrew is the word maha, to linger, to delay, I mean, you get the picture here. He's just like, I'm not going to do this. He's dragging his feet. It's kind of like when you need to be somewhere and your wife or your kids are just not getting it. And they're just like taking their sweet time. You're like, come on, sweetheart, let's go. We got to be there at five o'clock. And, you know, there's no sense of urgency. They're just kind of lollygagging. You guys ever experienced that or am I the only one with my wife? Okay. I love her to death, trust me. But, you know, when you tell her we got to be here, I've gotten to the point where I tell her, okay, we got to be here at at five o'clock, really, we've got to be there at six, but I tell her five. You guys ever do that? Okay. I'm glad I'm not the only one. Different clocks. There you go. <laughs> so, um, so then we see that the, uh, the angels here, they're charged with protecting uh, Lot's family because they're Abraham's relatives. You got to remember, Abraham prayed for Lot and his family. He prayed that they would, you know, be saved from the destruction that was coming. So here we see that the angels literally, it says, grab them, okay? And he grabbed, they grabbed them forcibly. So if you guys have young kids, you'll know that, you know, sometimes if they're going to go and, you know, touch something like the stove or whatever, you're going to go and you're going to grab them very quick, right? That's the picture here. And so they're led to safety um, for, it says, for the Lord was merciful to them. That is, they got mercy just like we did, something we didn't deserve. Now, in 17 through 23, we see that Lot now flees to Zoar, okay? Now, he's complaining, you know, catastrophe is about to overtake Sodom, and he argues about the escape route, all right? He says maybe he's weak, maybe he thinks he can't get there fast enough, whatever the problem is, but he's sitting there complaining rather than saying, hey, let's get my family, let's go, let's move, let's get going. So he's basically saying, okay, Angels, I understand. Let's, let's kind of compromise. Now, this is, again, another theme that's going on with Lot is that he's, he's all about compromise, right? But he says to them, okay, how about I run out to, I, I'm going to go ahead, I'm going to run out of Vegas, but would you allow me to go to that little city over there called Reno? I mean, that's kind of the analogy here, right? You know, he, Lot leaves a forwarding address for, for his sin, okay? So he's still not getting it. And what's amazing to me is that the angels allow this. I mean, I don't know about you, but I mean, um, if I was an angel, I would probably just, you know, pick them, pick them up, drag them, and just throw them on the mountain or boot them, whoever said boot them. But um, that's what I would do. But, uh, you know, obviously I'm not an angel, obviously. 
So we notice that God makes a, di- a distinction between Lot and the people of Sodom. And the New Testament calls Lot righteous. And in a comparative way, he's, he's better than the people who lived in Sodom, but he's a carnal believer. Um, and the angel said, I can't do anything until you're out of there and you're in a safe place. So we see that God is still merciful to him and he's trying to get him to go, but he still doesn't want to go. But there's a reason that they're trying to move him to safety. So here's the principle. When God judges, he makes a distinction between the godly and the ungodly, right? And it's a principle that's found throughout the scriptures. When it came to the flood, did God just indiscriminately destroy the world or did he save a group of eight people in an ark? Okay. In Joshua chapter 10, hailstones come from heaven on the Amorites and destroy the enemies of God. Okay. And then we see in Ezekiel chapter 9, that same principle, an angel of the Lord is told to go throughout the city of uh, Jerusalem, place a mark on the foreheads of the people who cry and sigh because of the sins and the wickedness of Jerusalem. And then God says, I'm about to destroy this city, but I want to save those people who care and are crying out and praying for this city. So we really do see that God makes a distinction between the godly and the ungodly. Second Peter chapter 2, verse 4 through 9 says, For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them to chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment and did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, being in the flood on, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemning them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly and delivered righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked for that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. Now listen to this. Here it is. Then the Lord knows how to deliver the God of te- godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under punishment for that great day of judgment. Do you guys count how many times they called Lot righteous? So quite a couple of times, two or three times he calls them righteous. Uh, righteous. So clearly we have a picture that in God's mind or in God's eyes, Lot is righteous. Yeah. I mean, that's the only thing I can think of because, I mean, <laughs> what was that? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we talked about this last week, the intercess- intercessory prayer of Abraham. And I think that's, that's really underlying all of this is that it was God's mercy towards Lot because of Abraham. And Absolutely. We're, we're going to talk about the one that uh, decided to, uh, you know, kind of look the other way. <laughs> so verses 24 to 29, we read here that, the, you know, we, this is where the fire and brimstone was rained down on the city, um, where Lot's wife was turned into a pillar of salt. And, um, you know, let's talk a little bit about this. This was the direct judgment from the Lord. And he was in full control of, ex- of its extent and its timing. And we're told that the devastation included four towns, um, even the soil on which they were built. And we see this in Deuteronomy 29, 23, where it says, and, and its land 
and, and its land is brimstone and salt, a burning waste, unsown and unproductive, and no grass grows on it, like the overthrow of Sodom and Gomorrah, Adma and Zeboim, which the Lord overthrew in his anger and in his wrath. Now, there's an archaeological researcher and scholar named Dr. Melvin Kyle who says, what is found in the plains in the Dead Sea region of Israel are salt deposits in bitumen, bitumen, I guess. Uh, there you go. Thank you. Um, which is a, a very viscous type of liquid. Um, they've also found hydrocarbons like tar and all kinds of stuff that, you know, is really interesting when you consider the amount of devastation and uh, high heat that was there. And because of those deposits are found everywhere, he says he believes in the biblical account and the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, that God did this. And the stuff, I don't know about you, but this stuff to me is, is just fascinating. Um, but he says that he also believes that there was a break in the earth's strata. Okay. Now, underneath the earth's strata was a subterranean pool of this oily material, maybe oil, I don't really know, that the whole surface was Sodom, where Sodom used to be, okay? And that something ignited it, could have been lightning. Um, you know, God could have used lightning, really doesn't say that, but the Bible often refers to fire from heaven, you know, which uh, could be lightning. And this whole area was struck, and potentially what he says is that it, it exploded. Now, Dr. Kyle also says that it's possible that this entire floor of the valley was lifted up off of the earth and that the earth's upper strata completely separated, sending this material sky high and then raining down. Now, you guys have all seen, have you guys seen that movie, Pompeii? Okay. I mean, you, this is the picture that's going on here. I mean, not only are you getting fire and brimstone and all this other stuff, you're getting the, the earth moving, and, and uh, we're going to talk about this. How many of you guys have ever been to visit a volcano? Like uh, in Hawaii, you know, Mount Kilauea and the crater and stuff. Pretty, uh, pretty fascinating to see that. So you're kind of familiar with that rotten egg smell that the, um, the hydrogen sulfide or the sulfur kind of gives off. Um, kind of like when you pass gas, but it's really, really bad, right? Um, I just want to see if you guys are awake. <laughs> All right. <laughs> All right. So this gas is extremely explosive, no pun intended, and highly toxic and fatal if it's inhaled. All right. Uh, this is going downhill real quick. So if you inhale a single breath of this concentration of 1,000 parts per million, it's stated that in the medical journals that you can actually go into a coma. So very, very toxic, very uh, poisonous. Now, in 1879, uh, volcanic gases from Mount Vesuvius overcame the residents of Pompeii within a few seconds, and their bodies were covered with ash from the eruption. The words traditionally translated brimstone and fire could be translated together as sulfurous fire. Now here, lightning may have ignited the gases causing an explosive wave of fire and burning sulfur that overcame the cities and destroyed both animal and plant life in the whole area. Now the Bible makes it clear that this is not just a freak seismic occurrence, but a planned punishment upon Sodom that came from the Lord. Now, the two phrases that we... Um, that were in that uh, verse were the Lord reigned and then he overthrew. So let's take a look at the Lord reigned. The Lord reigned out of the heavens is the word matar, to reign or deluge. So you get the picture that, you know, this is burning sulfur rained down upon them with no escape. There's nowhere to go. It's kind of like on a rainy day when it's coming down, you're going to get wet. 
Um, so the vegetation in this area was, was never, re it never recovered. Uh, what was once good grazing land that attracted lot to this area uh, is now bare and submerged under 20 feet of water. Now the second phrase, he overthrew, may describe the destruction by an earthquake. And the Hebrew word is hapak, to turn or to overturn. So you get the sense that, you know, it means to kind of turn upside down. So you've got two things going on. You've got earth kind of moving upside down, and you've got things that are falling on top of it. So it's, it's pretty chaotic. Now, we're, we're getting to the point here where um, we are going to look at Lot's wife. So in verse 26, let's take a look at Lot's wife. Um, as it says that when she looked back, she became a pillar of salt. So we gave you a basis now of what was going on and what was happening. And, um, you know, but the, disobedi the disobedience of Lot's wife is really what cost her her life because we're told that they were, they were told to not look behind, don't stop, just keep on going, just run, right? And I don't think that when you look at this that Lot just looked back once. It, it was probably an ongoing thing. It was probably a long glance or a gaze, okay? Like she longed for this home where she grew up. This is where she, you know, her, her family was. And this is where, um, you know, she was uh, wishing that she was at. And she was probably sad that this whole place was kind of going up in smoke, okay? Now, in verses 27 to 29, you know, we also see now that Abraham is going to, um, we, we see that the uh, verses 27 to 29 serve two purposes. First, they reveal the heart of Abraham in contrast to the self-interest of Lot. And then we also see that Abraham, like God, did not delight in wickedness nor in the destruction of the sinners. He was hoping that they would turn. But again, remember, remember he kind of was negotiating with God. He started with 50, 45, 40, all the way down to 10. And uh, as um, my brother just said not too long ago, 10 didn't make it out. Nine did because Lot's wife ended up in a pillar of salt. You're right. Sorry, my math is wrong this morning. very close. I went to uh, a school that did new math, so I apologize. <laughs> so let me try to, uh, yeah, <laughs> let me try to wrap this up guys. Cause I know we're going a little bit over here. So if we look now to verses, uh, 30 to 38, we, we come to a place where Moses, the author of this book, the human author of this book records a very tragic conclusion. I'm not going to read the entire account here, but we kind of know what happened, right? We read it earlier. Um, and in verse 30, you know, Lot took off towards Zoar in fear. We're not told why he was afraid, but he went up to the mountains. Why the angels didn't just didn't grab him, throw him up there in the first place, I don't really know. But the, something that's really nagging me about this part of the scripture, and that is Lot had the opportunity to go back to Abraham, but he didn't. If he had gone back with Abraham, there surely would not have been any problem of too much prosperity now because Lot lost everything, right? Okay. Um, and, and, and Abraham lived in the mountains, so there would have been a sense of security. He's out of trouble. 
uh, so on and so forth. Now, if he'd also gone back with Abraham, there could have been fellowship, there could have been encouragement, um, and perhaps the possibility of some God-fearing husbands for his daughters. So why he didn't go back, we're never told, but, you know, it's just something that I thought about. Now, 31 through 38 is probably one of the most graphic and probably the darkest and one of the most repulsive uh, pieces of scripture um, that, I, that, that I've come across. And, and it, you know, Lot was able to take his daughters out of Sodom, but he couldn't take the Sodom out of his, his daughters. And we see that in Lot's life that his moral compass was off. And so we see that now trickle down to his, his daughters. Their moral compass is extremely off in their own lives. So in the sec, in 198, Lot suffered. Lot, Lot offered his two virgin daughters to be victimized by the perverts of, of uh, Sodom, and now later in the same account, these same daughters victimize a drunk Lot who carried out the same uh, thing against him that he wanted to do against the men of Sodom. Okay, so talk about the uh, the tables turning. Now, as a result, the daughters get pregnant. They bear two sons. We talked about uh, Moab and Benami. Um, but here's why these, these guys are important. Later in Israel's history, the tribes of Moab and Ammon caused numerous problems for the people of God, even becoming the enemies of God, okay? Um, yet strangely, at times, God protects these people, which is, you're going to see why. And for those of you that have kind of uh, read about Moab and the Moabites, you understand why this is important. But, um, you know, it, God uses whatever evil for good as he can. And we see that in Genesis 50, verse 20 with Joseph. Um, but eventually, out of the lineage of the godless Moabite race came a woman named Ruth, which subsequently was the direct line to who? To Jesus Christ. So, I mean, God truly did work something for good in this situation. So, Guys, just remember that desperation and fear can make us do some really stupid and sinful things, um, much like uh, Lot's daughters. So in conclusion, there are many lessons that we can take away from this chapter. Um, the choices we make as men affect those around us and our families. But the most important lesson for us tonight is the realization that uh, when we reap or what we reap, we will reap to what we sow. Sorry, I'm getting a little tongue-tied here. We will reap to what we sow. Lot decides to move to Sodom and live among the wicked residents of the city. His decision results in son-in-laws who don't respect him, a wife who doesn't believe the Lord enough to obey and survive the escape from Sodom, and a pair of daughters who can see no other way to have children but by incestuous intercourse with their drunk father. So just keep in mind that you know, our decisions really are going to affect our kids, and they will affect their kids. The wives we marry or will be married to, for those of you that are single in here, will determine our ability as men to pass on godly values to our children. And then the environments where we uh, call home or where we work will mold our children's lives as well. So let me leave you with this. In the days when people were setting, settling from the east and moving across the plains and toward the west, and there were the homestead laws where people could carve out a piece of land and just settle there. One group in a wagon train was coming across the plains, and suddenly they looked up from their camp, and they saw an entire wall of fire, uh, fire coming towards them. Evidently, lightning had struck in the mountains, ignited the plains, and it was as if the world of fire was coming to destroy them. 
One of the prisoners was a quick thinker, and he quickly took a match and lit it and burned all of the grass in a large area around the camp. And then he told everybody to get inside that circle. And as the fire got closer and closer and closer, one of the little girls in the camp cried out, we're all going to be burned up. And the man said, sweetheart, you don't have to worry. We're not going to be burned up. We're standing where the fire already was. It can't come here any longer. There's nothing to burn up around here, and they were saved, of course. If you're in Christ, you're standing where the fire already was. If you're in Christ, you're standing where the judgment already was. But if you're standing outside of Christ, you're standing in the direct line of where judgment is coming. All we have to do is just kind of read the book of Revelation. It's kind of all laid out for us, right? Let's, uh, let's close in prayer. Father, again, we just thank you for your word. We thank you, Father, for just the accounts that you've given us of these lives, Lord. And we just ask you, Lord, that you would just uh, purify our hearts, Lord. Father, as we have read how quickly and easily it is for us to walk away from you, we ask that you would just grab hold of us quickly as those angels did, Father, and just never let go. We pray for these men tonight, Lord. Thank you for just their lives and for saving them, Lord. We pray for the, uh, the difficulties in their lives, for the things that they're going through, Lord. I also just ask, Father, that you bless their families, that you would give them um, just the wisdom and the knowledge and the discernment and understanding on how to lead their families, Lord. Thank you again, Father, for your scriptures. We love and we praise you. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, guys.